Well, good afternoon it's, and welcome um, to our conversation about a healthy retirement. Um, my name's Sally Boyle. Um, I, my company is SJ Boyle Wealth Planning. Um, I'm a registered investment advisor. SJ Boyle Wealth Planning is a registered investment advisor in the state of New Hampshire. Um, what that means is I do planning work for clients on a fee basis. And my company is registered with the state of New Hampshire to do that. I have to uh, apologize. My partner, uh, Renee Harvey, who is an attorney and who is scheduled to be here to do the estate planning piece with me, and as well as some of the health care planning piece, her mother just called her. And um, she can't get out of bed when she's at her home. So she may come at the end of the presentation. She was scheduled to be at the end anyway. Uh, but she and I have done this together enough. I feel pretty confident that I'll be able to uh, handle the, the essentials of the estate planning conversation. And if anyone has a question that I'm not able to answer, I will get that to Renee and she'll get back to you. Okay? Um, I think the critical takeaway from our conversation today is that um, I think we used to imagine when we retired that we'd sort of, the first part of our life was when we got ready for retirement and the second part of our life was retirement and we'd just be in that golden sunset where everything sort of remained consistent and the same. And I think what retirees are finding today is that it's an ever-changing environment um, and that we live in a dynamic world and your planning needs to be dynamic too even when when you enter retirement it's important that you review your income and your expenses on a consistent basis you evaluate um, your income sources um, as it relates to your needs so you recognize that going forward uh, because the, the challenge, I think, in retirement today is longevity. We're living for a long, long time. And so understanding that we have the resources to continue to generate the cash flow that we need for our, for our expenses is important to revisit on a fairly consistent basis, and, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, we all know that managing our investments is a critical piece um, because a lot of us are living on those assets that we that we set aside, um, but also making sure that we've got the 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 structure, the fail safes for those things that can go wrong, the the what ifs, to prepare for the uncertainties. Even in retirement, this sort of planning is critical to. It's important to do it before you retire, and it's critical to do it after you retire. Uh, because we're looking at volatile financial markets, we're looking at a low interest rate environment. I think a lot of us who thought maybe we were going to retire, we looked forward from the 70s and we looked at um, the interest rates that we were getting at that time. You know, income seemed fairly simple. I'll just put everything into CDs and treasuries and I'll live off the interest and, and, it's, and it'll be simple. But we're in a very low interest rate environment, it's, it's challenging. To, to get the income that we need off of our savings. We know that there's a certain amount of economic uncertainty. Uh, we certainly are looking at an ever-changing healthcare environment. Um, and so we talk about those things 
in retirement or in advance of retirement because it being prepared for that sort of a dynamic world is really the challenge. Would you all agree? Yes. Today? Um, so I'm always interested. I hate to do all the talking. I'm always interested in what's what you view as a healthy retirement. Um, is it a would you say it's a sound financial plan? And I want to invite, I don't know if our um, remote area can talk to us. Please do if you can. Um, is it a sound financial plan? What's the most important ingredient for, for a happy retirement? Um, a sound financial plan? Is it good health? Um, is it a bright red convertible? <laughs> that can be converted into sound financial plan. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts? What, what is what for for those of you who are here? What's the most critical piece in your mind to a to a good, happy retirement? Any one of those? A sound financial plan. A sound financial. Okay. Yeah, Thank you. Flexibility in that. Okay. I think that's exactly right. The flexibility in the sound financial plan. Is that what you're saying? I think good health is the most important because if you have good health, then you can get income, even though a sound financial plan is important. Right. Um, yeah, but health can change in a moment. Yes. Any other thoughts? I'm going to give you um, uh, the Lincoln Financial Group um, actually asked the same questions of retirees. And I think this will give you a sense of, of even of that what your thoughts are are probably um, reiterated in the in the broad group. The most important thing I found interesting: 75% of the respondents said my spouse's health was the most important thing to me, not mine. My spouse's health was the most important, the one that rang true for everyone. Um, for the majority. Was that the, would that be the person who was the head of household, whether it be a male or a female? Um, they didn't limit it to head of households in terms of surveys. They just surveyed um, a group of um, retirees and asked them, what's, what concerns you the most? What's the most important part of, of your healthy retirement? And three-fourths of them said, my spouse's health. The second most frequent uh, comment was the impact of taxes on my retirement. 73% said they were most concerned about taxes. 71%, um, which was the next most frequent response, said my health. So health care is a big concern uh, to retirees. Um, the next highest one was having Medicare through my retirement, again reiterating the, the health conversation. Uh, the next highest was generating enough income to maintain my lifestyle. Um, and then finally, the expenses of maintaining my family's health. So health is a consistent theme throughout this, and we're going to talk about health care um, in retirement today. Um, but secondarily is maintaining that, the, minimizing the impact of taxes on your income so that you keep more of your after-tax income and maintaining enough income throughout your life, throughout your lifestyle. So a lot of what you all are saying today is, is uh, was, was reiterated there. Um, this is a good, if you're looking forward to retirement, I think this is a good survey of 
those people who are in retirement, how well they anticipated some of those same components of their retirement. Taxes, living expenses in the form of homes and mortgages, household expenses, health and health care. This survey, again, was done by, um, by the Lincoln Financial Group, and it asked retirees, how well did you anticipate these different components of your retirement? Um, and you'll notice the red bar is what did they anticipate, and then the blue bar is what did they actually experience. And so for retirees, when it came to taxes, again, that was a primary concern. We saw that before, how the impact of taxes on my, on my retirement. Um, I tend that most of the, the uh, retirees underestimated the taxes um, on their retirement. A lot of them thought that it would be about 10% of their income when in fact it was something closer to 15% of their income. So they under-anticipated taxes. We all know the home and mortgage is going to be the easiest thing for us to to anticipate, right? So most retirees were right on in terms of their household <coughs> expenses when it comes down to homes and mortgages. Um, but they under-anticipated their household expenses. And we'll talk about that. I think sometimes we under-anticipate the impact of inflation on our household expenses. But the other thing is we didn't expect to live so long. So we naturally under-anticipated what inflation would do to our household expenses because we're living longer. If I'm now living for 24 years into retirement because I retired at 60 and I'm living to 90, which is not unusual if you make it to 65, then your expenses have doubled with a 3% inflation rate over that time frame. Most of us probably under-anticipated that. Does that make sense? What was interesting was they expected healthcare expenses to be much more a percentage of their income than they actually experienced in retirement. And you can see almost three times as much they anticipated. Uh -huh. Why do you think there's such a discrepancy? I think that people, again, as we said before, if you go back to this survey, people are really concerned about both their health and their health care and retirement. So I think that they expect that between insurance premiums, hospitalization, um, I think they're concerned about the impact of, of health care uh, on, on their, because in, in this we can see my spouse's health, um, my health, um, am I gonna have Medicare? I think a lot of people worry about Medicare today. And is Medicare going to give me as much tomorrow as it's giving to uh, retirees today. I think that's a significant concern to people. So when so you know when you see what they were surveyed, then it's, it's somewhat logical that they're very concerned about whether they're going to be able to pay for their health care in retirement. Um, so then the question is how much do you need? When you're looking forward to retirement, and I have a few people in here who are not retired yet, right? Um, this is a classic question that you're probably asked when you sit down with a financial planner, maybe you ask yourself, you know, if I am making this much money today, how much am I going to need in retirement? Is it? And I think there's a generally accepted principle that you might need 70 to 80% of your working income to provide for yourself in retirement. 
Um, what's interesting is, and I think generally people tell you that, you need to have 80% of your retirement income. And then you start to say, well, where's that income gonna come from? There is a retirement uh, dimensional fund advisors who manage retirement assets who um, have done a survey of this. And this may be helpful in helping you think about your income resources. Um, they found that it, the percentage of income that you need to cover varies based on your pre-retirement income. I'm gonna say that again. The percentage of income that you need post-retirement is a function of what your pre-retirement was, income was, um, that income that you had before retirement. And then that also impacts your sources of that retirement income, okay? So let me give you an example. If you made less than $25,000 pre-retirement income, um, you're probably gonna need more than 80% of your income in retirement. About 82% is the number that they found. And of that 82%, 59% is gonna be provided by your Social Security. And about 23% will be provided by your savings. If you looked, if you made income between 25 and $50,000, um, you're probably, their survey was that, that they found that retirees needed about 72% of their pre-retirement income and that Social Security provided about 38% of that income and their savings needed to provide about 34% of that income. Um, if you made between 50 and $87,000 in income, you probably need to retire on about 62. Their survey found that uh, post-retirement, retirees retired on 62% of that income, or we can see about $50,000 if $87,000 was what you made before retirement. Social Security provides about 31% of that income, and your savings needs to provide about 31% of that income. Uh-huh. What if you <clears throat> were not spending anywhere near your income before you retired? And, and it's always good to, to do this survey on your own. I think that probably at the, you're right, at um, certain income levels, uh, basic living needs takes a higher percentage of our income. But I find at, at other income levels, if people have maintained their lifestyle, um, there's a lot more discretionary income that can go towards savings, I do find that. It's not my personal experience as a planner that that's true consistently. I find that the majority of people don't save. Their, their lifestyles are not um, significantly less than their income. So you generally, you're, I would say that perhaps you're actually saying expenses rather than income? No, what, what this survey said was, um, it surveyed again uh, re retirees and it said so your pre-retirement income was this what did you need post-retirement so these are actual numbers uh, based on their survey that the lower the income the higher percentage of income people needed in retirement and the second takeaway from from these numbers is if you need a higher percentage of your income as your income goes up more and more of it needs to be provided by your savings. Those are the two takeaways. And your so savings are, are include your investments? 
the, your savings includes your retirement accounts. Mm -hmm. um, it, for those of us who are fortunate enough to have pensions, which are many of us, it, it includes your those things that your employer set aside for you and give you a guaranteed pension. And it also includes your savings, your um, after-tax savings. Um, the other thing that I think is kind of cri critical is, you know, recognizing again, sort of this dynamic approach to your retirement is that um, it really depends on the phase of retirement that you're in. My experience is I find my younger retirees, um, those that are 65, maybe through 75 to 80, if their health is good, they're more active, their income needs are higher, uh, but I find that it, in the later years of their lives, maybe their 80s to 90 years of age, it's a quieter time in their life. And if their health care remains relatively consistent through retirement, which is, the, um, is kind of the wild card there, that generally their income needs go down in those later years in retirement. Um, but again, all of these expenses, I think one of the reasons that we underestimate what our income needs are is we don't think about the impact of inflation on, on those, given the longevity of our retirement. Um, you know, when Social Security was founded, the premise of Social Security was most of us would die in our 70s, and it would actually be our early 70s, right? Part of the reason the Social Security system is challenged today is because we're living so much longer than the actuarial tables actually projected uh, for, for it to provide income for There's us. There's also for more people at 65 and older all over the world. Oh, that's right. That's but absolutely right. There's, right. And the reason there's more people is because we're not dying. Right. We were supposed to be dying and now we're living. And so, um, and the boomers are just about to hit too. So yeah, that's, that's the challenge for all of us is we're living longer than, certainly we could have anticipated, I'm saying retirees today in their 30s and 40s had no idea that they were going to live until they were, my dad kept telling me I was going to be gone in 65, he's 86 right now. So um, so that's it's good to project that, uh, that longevity. So how do we do that? How do we talk about income? Am I clear on everything up to that point? Mm -hmm. there's, there's just a couple of things. It's just really to think about your income, think about your longevity, and think about your, your income sources. Um, how much do you need is one of the questions that you ask. What can you count on? And we're going to talk about that. How do you fill the gap between what you need and what your guaranteed income sources? How does your portfolio fit in? And how do you monitor on an ongoing basis? I always suggest um, to pre-retirees as well as post-retirees, again, that dynamic approach to your planning, I suggest that you add up your, exp your expenses. And pre-retirees in particular, I emphasize that you break it up into two categories, your fixed, your absolutes, I, I have to have these, my have to's, versus my want to's, which is your variable expenses. Those things that are not discretionary, your homes, your mortgages, your health care, your car payments, your heat, your food, um, and those things that you have some discretion over, which generally is how much am I going to travel, am I going to eat out, do I... Um, do I have any major purchases? Some of them are discretionary in terms of cars. Some of them are, um, are, are not discretionary. Some of them are discretionary. Am I going to gift money to my grandchildren's education? Those kinds of, of things that 
really um, are either unpredictable or I can choose whether to spend the money or not. Break them into those two categories because then I suggest that you can compare those things that you can count on, your guaranteed income sources. Compare those to your fixed and absolute expenses or try to equate them if you can. Um, we know we can count on Social Security. I don't care what anybody says. Don't worry about Social Security. It's going to be there. If, if the system starts looking a little funny, they're going to either adjust the adjustments, like the inflation adjustment, or they're going to just increase the taxes on, on the younger generation. Uh, but those people certainly that are in, in, social in retirement or relatively close to retirement today are going to be able to, to depend on Social Security in some form, I'm quite sure. Um, some of us are very, very lucky to have other guaranteed income sources in the form of pensions, government employees, um, our military, uh, railroad retirees have guaranteed uh, retirement. Um, so if you're lucky enough to have that pension added into your Social Security and related to your fixed expenses. Then there are things that you can build into your guaranteed income sources that are coming from Social Security or pensions. One, I have a question sure. on the pension thing. Uh -huh. If you worked for somebody like years ago and uh, supposed to get a pension from them, can they ever renege on that? Only under only in bankruptcy. I mean, we saw that GM did that. Uh, they changed their retiree benefits in bankruptcy. Um, and a bankruptcy court will make a decision whether the um, whether re the retiree benefits retiree benefits or that level to which the retiree benefits should be funded. And there were different. I'm not going to speak to it um, probably as intelligently as I should have, as I could if I would have read uh, it before I came in here, but. The, um, the unions actually became actively involved as a creditor to GM in the negotiation of their retiree benefits. Um, they owned some of the stock. Um, they did some things to try to help the company come to a reasonable solution in their retiree benefits. But I do think the retirees experienced a reduction in their medical care benefits. As an example, my father used to work for US Steel and they were guaranteed um, Medicare supplements all the way through retirement. They have stopped those. So, so some of your benefits, your income benefits, should be guaranteed because when you went to retirement, um, they generally just bought an annuity on your life for uh, that paid income until you until you died. So they offloaded the liability of your income to an insurance company. Um, but no, some of your benefits can be vulnerable into retirement. Yeah. So just to be clear, you're saying if you have a guaranteed annuity, that you're not, that's not necessarily threatened? Um, guaranteed annuities are generally issued by an insurance company. Right. And so you give them X number of dollars and they tell you that we will pay you X number of dollars per month or per year for the rest of your life. And so the vulnerability in an annuity like that is the insurance company and the health of that insurance company because if they go, I mean, their, their assets are to be segregated and the states are, they're managed by individual states and so they should be managed 
towards their, those liabilities. Liabilities is the income that you pay out. But they do keep it in a general account, and that is intended to be segregated assets. But it is a function of the health of that insurance company. So w when you enter into an annuity, doing good research on that insurance company is important. That is important. But annuities, you're right. Annuities provide guaranteed income options. Um, certain annuities do. Uh, there's a variety of annuities. We've all heard them, variable annuities, fixed annuities, that are used kind of as accumulation vehicles. I put my savings in there and I'm guaranteed an interest rate or, or some sort of return based on my investments. Those are not the ones I'm talking about. I'm talking about the annuities that, that you just referenced was I give my money to the insurance company and they guarantee me an income stream. So that's a way to build in guaranteed income in addition to your social security and pe pension. Um, gifts and inheritances, I list them. I don't ever suggest that I count on them, but there are certain inheritances. Um, I have clients that I'm working on right now that um, own uh, a gas well, so they get a guaranteed income stream for as long as that gas well is there. That's an inheritance that might provide an income stream for you. A rental income. I see more and more people relying on renting portions of their houses. I see people in advance of retirement owning rental real estate, buying rental real estate for the purpose of supplementing their retirement income. There's some management associated with that. There's no question about it. Um, but there's whole resources today of, um, of to help you if you make a decision that I want to stay in my home, I don't want to leave my home, um, I have these rooms I'm not using. Was it the Golden Girls? Believe yeah. it or not, the, everyone remembers the TV show, The Golden Girls. There is a website, The Golden Girls, set up for women who are looking to find other women who want to share residences. So that's, that's the way to do it. I just sat down with clients at 10 o'clock this morning where it's um, a mom and dad with a daughter and son-in-law who have made a decision that they're going to share their residence. And son and daughter-in-law are going to buy mom and dad out. And we're trying to figure out exactly what that should look like so mom and dad can afford to stay in the house. I think we're going to see more and more of that sort of interfamily workings um, as time goes on. Um, so rental income is, is a source of, uh, of perspective, guaranteed income, is, but income that we can count on is, is what I want to, to, the way I want to qualify. The other thing is reverse mortgages. Um, reverse mortgages are complicated. Um, they're not simple, but it's one where you go to a mortgage company and you and your spouse or just you go to that company and say, I'd like to begin to draw down on the equity in my house because I want to stay here. I want to stay in my home. And the mortgage company tells you that they will guarantee you an income stream for the rest of your life. And they'll tell you what that is based on the amount of equity you have in your house. And believe it or not, um, <coughs> You cannot outlive that income stream. If some, at, at the end of it, 
the mortgage company takes your home when you die they take your home but if you um, if you receive more income than the actual equity value the mortgage company continues to pay you so it doesn't stop so it's it's interesting every mortgage company is different in how they approach it how they value the equity in your house um, but reverse mortgages are being used more and more frequently um, as a way for people to stay in their homes. Does that make sense? So that's another, these are just different ways that you can kind of add to Social Security and any pension income that you have to, um, to provide a guaranteed income stream or a semi-guaranteed income stream uh, for, for the rest of your life. And to the degree that you can build in guaranteed income streams, you improve the probability that you're not going to outlive your savings. Does that make sense? Because we know that our account values go up and down in our investments and in our retirement accounts and interest rates go up and down. So that pot of money that we have is somewhat dependent on these very variable values, right? Whether it's interest or our account values. So in a down market, if I need to take money out of my stock account to provide income for me, that's a principle that's not there that will ever come back. So to the degree that we can build guaranteed income streams into our retirement income sources, like this, like annuities, like reverse mortgages, like rental income, um, we improve the probability that we will not outlive our assets. We are less vulnerable to poor market conditions and poor interest rate conditions. What we defined before is some of the challenges of retiree income, low interest rates, volatile market situations, to the degree that we don't need to depend on those things to provide our retirement income, we improve the probability that we'll be able to maintain our assets. Does that make sense? Any questions so far, comments? Does it ever make sense to take money out of an IRA to buy an annuity? Um, I, yeah, I mean, Yes, that would be a tax-free exchange um, so that you're not paying income taxes on those monies. Um, so, yeah, it's it does make sense to the degree. Lots of times I, I suggest to people that they, in advance of retirement, and maybe as far as 10 years in advance of retirement, they go through this exercise where they think about, and normally they have their you know, retirement assets and their IRAs. It's not ideal to use IRA money for that because you've already got sheltered, you already have tax shelters in your IRA. Um, so what your IRA is doing is literally buying that, uh, that investment. The best thing for you to do is to own your annuity outside of your IRA if you can. I mean, for a lot of people, their retirement assets are the bulk of their savings. Um, but you really, would prefer probably to have that annuity outside of your IRA. Um, and yes, I, I suggest to people that they give some thought to doing this a good 10 years in advance of retirement to think about an annuity as how it can enhance their, their income stream. 
Because annuities, the way that they're structured today, the earlier you buy them, the greater the um, retirement income, guaranteed retirement income can be. Because they have built-in ways of um, growing your account value for income purposes that are guaranteed guaranteed above today's interest rates too. So it's always good to, the other thing I would caution people is know that annuity person that you're talking to and have a lot of confidence in them. Annuities are complicated. There are some good ones. There are some poor ones. Um, there are those that are structured reasonably in terms of expenses. There are those that are not. And so really know who you're talking to when you come to, to having an annuity discussion. And maybe talk to two people, three of people, because it's an important decision, as I was saying, the insurance company that you're dealing with is your lifetime partner, right? And so think of it as your one of your retirement marriages because it is your lifetime partner. And so the financial health of that um, insurance company is important. Um, and you, you just want to, be, it's, a, it's a lifetime decision. It's a very long-term decision, so make sure it's, it's a good one. Does that make sense? Any other questions? All right. So then we have our expenses. Um, we have our guaranteed income sources, and we start to think, well, what am I going to use now to fill up the gap? And we know that we're going to take distributions from our retirement accounts. Some of us have 401ks. Some of us have IRAs. Some of us have taken our 401ks or our 403bs, or if we've changed jobs in a number of places and I've got pensions all over the place, I've consolidated all of those accounts into my rollover IRA. And yeah, everyone from that what you should do is 401. I, I just left mine, I've done it. I don't know that there's a, um, I have employers who um, take on the responsibility of investing for their employees and the employees, or your employer is the one that screens your mutual funds, that's their fiduciary responsibility, and you've become extremely comfortable with that employer and the way that they provide the investment alternatives to you and you've done well, I've got no argument, then there's no reason to, if they allow you to, a lot don't allow you to leave your uh, retirement assets with them long term, but if they allow you to, then do it as long as they, as they do allow you to. Um, some people want the simplicity, I don't want this account there and this account there and this account there. And even if they have employers who have reasonably competitive um, investments as options for them, they still just want to see it all in one place. And so that's why I see a lot of people consolidating their pensions and their 401ks or their 403bs into a rollover IRA. Because as you get older and as these you get statements and they're complicated and um, I, I find a lot of retirement account and investment account statements are confusing. So I want it all in one place, then a rollover IRA makes some sense for you. Um, and there's a lot of intellectual thinking. One of the rules of thumbs, now that you've got your arms around what my pension accounts, what my IRA accounts, what my 
uh, retirement accounts all look like. I've put them all together because I'm asking myself, how much should I take out of these accounts and feel comfortable with it? There's a lot of intellectual thinking that has, and it's been tested and tested and retested. A 4% withdrawal rate on those accounts is something that's reasonable for you to consider taking. Um, and you won't outlive your money. Now, I saw something re recently that said, because interest rates were so low and have been so low for such a long period of time, that that number might maybe needs to be adjusted to three to 4%. Uh, so keep that in mind, but this is just a good rule of thumb. Okay, so I've got a few hundred thousand dollars in assets. What can I reasonably think that I might be able to take out of my account every single year and not outlive my money. Um, maybe about $8,000 would be a reasonable consideration to that. And a very conservative one would be $6,000. Withdrawal. Withdrawal, dollar withdrawal, three to 4%. There are those who have said 5%, but I would argue that that's probably in a better market condition than we're, than we're seeing today or a higher interest rate environment than we're seeing today. So. I say four to five percent, but I'm more comfortable saying four percent. Really, does that make sense? Good rule of thumb as I'm projecting and thinking about this. Um, a question sure. about that. Um, in terms of the four or five percent, I know that there's an excellent um, return basically on delaying taking Social Security. That's right. So, so um, would that play into whether you take a higher or lower percentage? and delay taking up Social Security? So, so that's a very interesting question. And I, and I think the, the one thing that I, and I'm going to touch on that, um, her point is, what's your name? Peggy. Peggy. Peggy's point is that if I wait to take Social Security, um, do I use these assets to, to fill that in in the meantime if I don't have enough income coming in from other sources to do that? Um, what, People may or may, my normal retirement age is 65, right? And the longer I delay taking Social Security, I get a bump up in my retirement income. So if I delay it for one year, I may get an 8% increase in my Social Security income. If I wait for two years, it's something closer to 16%. So there might be as much as a 30% increase bump up in my Social Security income if I wait to take it to 70 over 65. But I may say, and so that that's fairly that's significant in terms of longevity because if you run the numbers, a 30% bump in your income. Um, I could have taken it from 65 to 70, so I had this pot of money that I would have brought into my household, and what does that total? Um, and the, But then I've got this increased amount for the rest of my life, and the question generally is, what's the break-even point? When when does that increase in income break even with, with, um, with the amount that I've already gotten? And it's really right around 14 years. So I've had clients who have said, my parents died early, I'm taking my Social Security now. That's, that's, I'm just gonna, I'm not going to wait to take it, I'm taking it. And then you look at your lifestyle and you say, well, my parents are living to 90, so if it means that I'm gonna break even at 80, I'm gonna wait and take my Social Security. Does all that make sense? So um, 
then where do I fill in my income? Again, I think you need to run your numbers, so to speak. Um, because before you start pulling, drawing down on your portfolio, I would say, how long is your portfolio going to last? And would it be better for me to work part-time rather than to draw down on my IRA? Is, are there other ways that I can supplement my income? I agree with you. I think waiting until age 70 works for most people in terms of when to take their Social Security. There's also other things if you're married um, and your um, spouse reaches full retirement age at age 65 um, and you're younger, um, you can take your spousal benefit from the time that your spouse retires until age 70 and allow yours to accrue and then start to take your, re your retirement benefit at age 70 and suspend your spousal benefit. So I would, before I started to draw down, if I thought that my retirement assets were not going to last because they may be less than what makes me feel comfortable when I look at that retirement rate, okay? Um, I'd like to allow them to grow into age 72. I would look at other optional income sources too, and there's a variety of ways to take Social Security if you're married. Um, if you're divorced and your former spouse is at full retirement age and you were married for 10 years and you um, don't uh, have it remarried, you have your spousal benefit that you can consider too. So consider all of your sources. Um, but I would argue that if you can, at that 4 to 5% withdrawal rate on your accounts at 65, make you feel comfortable that you are going to be able to maintain your lifestyle needs starting to draw down at 65, I would probably do that before. Every situation is different, but it's more likely that that would be a better decision for you than taking your Social Security early. But every circumstance is different. I, I hate to generalize an answer like that, you know what I'm saying? But those are the variables that I think you look at. Your Social Security dies with you, though. You get $250 and it's gone. Whereas your portfolio go to your family or something. You know what I mean? Yes. You're not, you're not going to get it. That, that's 40 exactly years, 50 right. years of working here is not going to give you a thing. Right. That's no, that, $250 towards your funeral, right. that's it. Right. No, that, that's, that's a really, really good point. I'm spending down my retirement assets or I'm spending down my portfolio, but I care about what I leave to my kids or my grandkids. That's what I'm saying. There's no succinct answer for anybody around any of these circumstances. It's all driven by what you care about, um, what your priorities are in terms of how you make these decisions. Um, good discussion though. Yes. This is the new, reti new retirement age 66. Like, yes. I yeah, so depending upon you, right? For the for the for the 45 to 54. Right, that's exactly. Thank you. 45 mm -hmm. to 54 is it's now 66. That's correct. That's right. And the, for even younger ages, it's pushed out to 67. I think that's the farthest it's pushed out so far. I think there are those younger before, before 45 that it's yeah. it's 67 years of age. So good point. Good point. Anybody else? Um. There's somebody in. There's oh, a question there. Can I hear you? <laughs> I think she might have muted you. Somebody muted them because I see can't. See if you got that red dot. It's muted. Can we undo the red thing? 
Yeah, but she muted. Thank you. Huh? <laughs> we can't hear you. He's trying to hear me. I've never heard anybody through these things in one of the other places. Well, we heard them initially. Yeah. When oh, they really? were setting up. Yeah, and she muted them because she thought we were going to start at 12:30. So whoever. Hi. Can we hear you? No. The mute button not on yours there. Is the mute button on there? Right in front of you. I don't think I muted them though. Hold on, let me see. Let's see here. Oh God, this is awful. Let me <laughs> see if it's mine. <laughs> I think it's yours because it's the red dots on the left. Okay, so hold on just a sec. So layout, presets, services. You don't want to end the call. No. Oh God. Yes. Cancel. See, <laughs> this is don't don't ever ask me to do this stuff. Here we go. Oh, let's see here. Do you want me to get the? Maybe you yeah, might be able to help us. Because the last thing I want to do is to disconnect them. Oh yeah. Then you're working on it. You got them. You got them. Oh, do I? That's yeah. why. Yeah. Oh, we can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. So I think your next slide might help to answer my question. Do you want to see the next one? That's where we are. That's the next yes. one. Yes, RFDs. Oh, I wanted to ask about RFDs oh, and how they affect the core percent that you were talking about. That's a very good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. Does Pipe take care of that? Yes, I'm going to talk about it right now. You're leading me into it. Thank you. Good. All right. So, yeah. You know, at some point, you've got your guaranteed income sources. You have your Social Security and whatever guaranteed income sources you've built in. And if you wait until age 70 to access your retirement accounts, you're going to have to start taking at 70 and a half your required minimum distributions. And 42. And 42. What is that? They're doing bingo. Oh, you got to turn the bingo off. I can't do that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Did I unmute them? Or did they unmute them? Yeah, only they can mute themselves. Okay, and so I didn't do anything. Okay, yes. And then you can unmute yourself if you have any more questions. Okay, so. your guaranteed income sources. You have your social security, you have your other sources of guaranteed income, and then you have your need, your retirement income needs. The second thing that you have no control over is your required minimum distribution, and generally that works out to roughly, um, the older you get, the higher the percentage goes up. But generally, it's somewhere around 5% of what's in your retirement account, generally speaking. So now I've got my guaranteed income sources, and I have to layer on my retirement, my required minimum distribution. So now, 
how does that relate to my total pool of money, which might be more than my IRA and might be more than my other retirement accounts? Excuse me, can you ask them? Do they mute it? It's really disturbing. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, no, that didn't work. You have to mute again. Okay, we have to. Oh, I think they're muted now. So. So what you do is you have the, um, you've got your guaranteed income sources, your retired minimum, your RMD, and you may have a gap between that and what you need to take out of your portfolio to maintain your lifestyle. So the first things that you generally access are your after-tax investment accounts. So if you've got savings, if you've got um, stocks and bonds outside of your retirement accounts, you use that up to the point that you are filling in your income needs. And then if you're getting enough, and that's where the 4 to 5% might, might um, guide you a little bit, um, I think you're looking at 4 to 5% of all of your accounts, your investment accounts as well as your retirement accounts. Um, those are reasonable withdrawal rates. And so how does that 4 to 5% re relate to what your withdrawals are, are in your accounts um, as it relates to what you need to supplement your Social Security? Does that make sense? In other words, think of it as layers. Social Security, pension, other guaranteed income sources. How does that relate to my total retirement income needs. Okay, so I have a gap to fill. How do I do that? Well, the first thing I have to do is I have to take my retired minimum distribution, my required minimum distribution, and if that's still not quite enough, I'll probably access my after-tax accounts. And if that's still not quite enough, maybe I'll access my the, the balance of the principal in my retirement accounts. And how do those total withdrawals over and above my guaranteed income sources to meet my lifestyle needs, how do those relate as a percentage of all of my accounts? Pre-retirement accounts and, and after-tax accounts. Does that make sense? Does that make it at all clear? Okay. Um, of course, the required minimum distributions apply to your IRAs and your retirement accounts, and they are um, calculated by IRS tables. You'll look at the IRS tables, or lots of times the companies that hold your investments or your, your retirement accounts will tell you what your RMD is, what your required minimum distribution is. Um, but you do want to make sure that you take it. Sometimes people drop the ball, and if you don't take your required minimum distributions, <coughs> then you do have a 50% tax penalty on, on them later that year. Yeah, Go Does ahead. this become reportable income? Yes, it's taxable income, yes. And that, you know, that's interesting. We, we'll talk about this a little bit too in terms of after-tax accounts, which is why people give some consideration to converting their retirement accounts to Roth accounts, and that's a whole separate analysis. But if you feel like you need some after-tax, retirement income Roths will do that. Any? Did that, was that Well, I question? was actually just a dumb question, but dumb. The, is, is the traditional IRA the only one that has the required minimum distribution? No, all retirement accounts do. 
all pre-tax, those things that you saved pre-tax, your, your 401ks, your, uh, your retirement accounts, your IRAs, all of those, and you can access that required minimum distribution. So they're all pooled for the purpose of calculation. And you can take the money from one account or a little bit from all accounts. It doesn't matter what account you take it from. So let's assume you have two, three, four retirement accounts and they total you know, $200,000 and you should be taking $6,000 out. You don't have to take a little bit from each account. You can take it from just one account if you want. Just as long as the total amount that you take from that account is equal to your RMD from your aggregate accounts. Does that make sense? Alrighty, so we have those, and then we fill in with our after-tax accounts. That's what, that's what I was saying. She was leading me into that. Um, the reason people consider Roths is exactly your point, uh, which is the higher my income um, that I need in retirement, the more likely that I might have some of my Social Security tax. Um, so it may make sense for me to have an after-tax retirement account, and that's what a Roth account is. For young people, I generally suggest that they give serious consideration to Roth accounts because by the time we retire, the bulk of our retirement accounts isn't what we put into it, it's what we earned. So if I can, I may give up on tax savings in those years that I'm saving, but the majority of those accounts will come out to be non-taxable because all of my earnings in a Roth account are tax-free. So it's well worth giving some consideration to them if you have discretionary savings, saving monies, savings uh, dollars. Did you say earlier though to use your after-tax first? You take your you take your guaranteed income sources. And then you have to layer your required minimum distributions on them. And then if you still have that gap, generally it makes sense to use your after-tax savings to fill in that gap. But for some people, that's still not quite enough. And so then they begin to draw down on their retirement accounts. So you would take again. out of your Roth IRA before you took out of your traditional IRA? No, no, I'm saying, I was saying your non-retirement accounts, and a Roth oh, is a okay. retirement account. Right. Okay, yeah. Because your retirement accounts has have some tax advantages when you die, when they go to your kids, their your kids can continue to defer the taxes on them. So it does not matter by state though. Some states like New Hampshire has a law that beneficiary, like you said, or versus Vermont. Does every state have to? Well, every state has a different income tax approach to it once they take the distribution. But federally, we all have the right to take, to have, um, to take, uh, to, to make our IRA or a beneficiary IRA the, reci the reciprocal of my parents' uh, retirement money and I can continue to defer taking the taxes over, over the course of my lifetime. So what's 401A, is that the Ross IRA? No, 401A is like a 401K. It's a pre-tax savings account, um, usually in a not-for-profit. So again, let's go back to my original slide, taxes matter. In retirement, uh, we, we, if we can minimize the, our, the impact of taxes on our income distributions, it makes a difference. It definitely makes a difference, okay? So we do tax management after retirement as pre-retirement and post-retirement. 
And these are just the examples of regular savings account, bank accounts, CDs, money markets, stocks, bonds, REITs, mutual funds, and ETFs. Those are our regular savings and investments, those things that are outside our IRAs. So then we talk about, okay, so now I've got to take money and I have to invest it. You know, when I retire, we've been told that you take your money and move it in an increasingly conservative position. We have very few stocks and a whole lot of bonds is, is really what, we're, what we look at because bonds pay us interest and they do help supplement our cash flow. But the thing that I think you really want to think about is where do bond rates of return and that income or those CDs, where does that um, get you in terms of your income relative to what inflation is doing to push your income needs up? And I think one of the things that I would argue, and I think best practices in this field say, is even in retirement, don't go completely into bonds. Um, give some consideration to having uh, other assets in, in your portfolios, understanding that you need to manage risk. There's no question about it. So how do I build a portfolio to meet my needs? Um, lots of times it's an educational piece. It's um, understanding, it's, it's risk management, it's making a decision what sort of rate of return do I need. I have a client who has X number of assets and she'd like to have everything in CDs, but guess what? Her CDs are not gonna generate the income she needs to even meet her required minimum distributions, right? So for every required minimum distribution I take, if she relies on CDs or low interest rate bonds to, to provide the return for that, I'm gonna start liquidating her principal, the, the core money account. And the more that I sell off that principal to come up with, with the required minimum distribution, the less she has to invest to generate later. So. You have to think about that. How's the rate of return relate to what I need to take out of my accounts to, to meet my income needs or to meet my required minimum distributions? Does that make sense? So we how do we build a portfolio? Well, let's talk about the fundamentals of portfolios, okay? Um, we know that historically from 1925 through 2007 that our inflation has averaged 3.5%. So what I really want to do is I really want to get a real rate of return relative to that rate. In other words, um, today my CDs are paying me about 1% to 2%. Well, if I own them, then I'm walking backwards relative to a historical rate of return. So I got to do something more. Even if I own treasury bills historically, I, I've had a marginal rate of return relative to inflation. I'm really, in fact, treasury bills and then I pay taxes on their interest when I get it. Um, my tax rate probably means that I, I'm walking, uh, neg again, negatively re relative to inflation. So I could own government bonds. There's been a real rate of return relative to inflation historically over this time frame, about 2% more. Corporate bonds have done about a half a percent better than that. Uh, we know that uh, the S&P 500 has generated a little bit better than a 10% rate of return over this time frame. 
And small cap stocks have done even better than that, about a 12% rate of return. But the problem here is that we've got volatility, right? We all know that the stock market bounces around. And it bounces around significantly. I mean, we've had um, in 2008 a, a correction that was similar to what we saw in, um, in, the, in the Depression. But in any particular year, we might see the stock market go down 5, 10, 20%. And you don't see that in the bond marketplace, right? So part of the reason that we like bonds is because it bounces around less. But bonds are different from cash in the sense that there's no guarantee of principal there either. It may bounce around less than the stock market does. But as interest rates go up, bonds go down, right? Because if you and I both have a bond, right, and mine, um, mine is paying 5%, but you are General Motors, and you're coming out with a new bond, and you're willing to pay 6% to get people to lend you money. So why does someone want my bond paying a lower interest rate? They don't. I've got to sell mine at a discount to match yours. So as interest rates start to go up, we start to see that bond values will go down. So there's not not a guarantee of principle with bonds, but with bonds, there's less volatility than with stocks. The other thing to keep in mind is, traditionally, generally speaking, bonds and stock, stock stocks behave very differently in the same economic environment. So I'm going to say that again. Stocks and bonds behave differently in the same economy. So we've had a fairly bad economy, you know, for since 2000, and we've seen interest rates go down because the Fed is trying to to stimulate the economy, and we've seen bond values go up, and they've been extremely popular, um, particularly since the correction of the market in 2008. So in a bad economy, bonds, low inflation economy, bonds do well, but in a good economy when the stock market is growing, we see stocks do well, but of course then inflation goes up, interest rates go up, and bonds do poorly. So the first step in risk management is understanding that I probably want to own both. Because when one is zigging, the other one's zagging. When other one's going up, the other one's going down. So that's the first step around risk management in terms of investing. How do I manage risk? Well, I diversify across stocks and bonds because I, I want to be in a good environment regardless of the economy. Does that make sense so far? Uh-huh. I remember reading Jane Brand Quinn who said um, sell all of your individual stocks and bonds and just buy funds. Um, I think that uh, Jane's right. The, the thing about, the okay, so let me go into you can buy individual stocks and individual bonds, or you can buy exchange-traded funds or mutual funds. And the difference is, I can give my money to GM and buy their bond, or I can give my money to PIMCO and buy a bunch of bonds. So if, if, I, if I am a smaller investor, 
if I buy a fund, a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund, I automatically get diversification. Because when I buy into that mutual fund, I own all of the bonds that they own, which may be hundreds of them or hundreds of stocks. There are certain stock funds that limit the number of stocks that they own, but generally the least I see is somewhere between 20 to 40. So I give my money to that manager, I automatically own 20 stocks. The reason that that makes perfect sense is because I get rid of individual bond risk and I get rid of individual stock risk. So in other words, if I've got $10,000 in one stock, um, then my welfare is based on how that stock performs. Um, if my $10,000 goes into a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund, I might own 40 stocks. So any one stock will only affect my investment maybe 2.5%, maybe 3% depending upon the number of stocks that that fund owns. So I think that's what you're saying is like if I buy a fund versus an individual stock or bond, I'm automatically diversified. And that is risk management. The first thing is asset class risk management. But then when you buy within these asset classes, diversification is important too because again, no one stock or one bond impacts your portfolio tremendously. Does that make sense? Which do you recommend that any of us who are not experienced in investments manage our own and decide what to, to purchase? I see um, two different styles of, in, of investors. And one is someone who is really willing to do the research. And they're very stimulated by doing that. You know what I'm saying? And I have seen individual investors do a reasonably good job of managing their own money. And then I see other investors who don't have the background or the inclination or the intention to do the research necessary to invest. And then I would say no, get some advice. Because it, um, the market, and what I mean by that is, you know, over time people develop a philosophy around not just individual investments, but where is the market today. You almost need to be an economist to really live through this particular market. And I have to say this market will end. This sideways market will end. Um, it's done it for the last 80 years. It's going to do it again um, to where we'll get seated in a fairly robust market. But for a lot of people, this sort of market, the volatility, the then it unnerves me. I'm really not comfortable. If, if my account value goes down 10 or 20%, I'm nervous. I can't sleep at night. And that that's significant. So you need to either modify where your money is, which means you'll be giving up on a rate of return, and there's a cost there. Um, but also finding the right investment advisor is also a challenge. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a big challenge. Um, because you want to make sure that they're objective, that they have your interests first, um, and um, they're not necessarily in a position where they have to give you whatever their co company is doing. 
uh, whatever their company's recommending. So you're either going to research the marketplaces themselves and find your own investments, or you're going to research a good manager. But I think a good manager is well worth what you might pay them. If they, first of all, educate you as to what's your target rate of return, what do you need to earn on these dollars to make sure my retirement accounts are doing, going to last for me, and exactly what sort of portfolio construction will accomplish that, and then help you to do the research on where are the funds, you know. Am I correct in believing that your services of S.J. Boyle mm -hmm. are for fee services, mm -hmm. and that you do you advise, but you don't manage. There are two ways that that I do manage. Both all of them are for fees. Okay, so let me let me talk about that because I think that's important. Um, you can find an investment manager who will work strictly, and I do this quite often for people on an hourly basis for you. Um, and S.J. Boyle Wealth Planning is registered with the state of New Hampshire to do this. And people, what, what they will do for you is they will help you to develop an investment, what I call an investment policy statement, which is educational. Um, they take your temperature in terms of risk tolerance, and they walk away with giving you an advi advice regarding what your asset allocation look, should look like. And we're going to talk about asset allocation in a minute, how you spread these assets and, and how you do it. Um, and then it's your job to go out and find the investments. So that's, that's, that's when you're saying the fee for surface on an hourly basis. Then you have registered investment advisors and wirehouses, um, you know, the Smith Barneys, the Morgan Stanleys the, of the world who will still manage your money on a fee-for-service basis as opposed to a commission-driven basis, um, where um, they will tell you that we'll manage your money for 1% of your assets under management. And they then the difference between the first one, where you're paid on an hourly basis, walk away with your investment policy statement, go find your own investments, is you want them to do the other step and the reason that you're paying them is because they do spend time finding the right funds, um, managing the portfolio around that where um, they may change managers on occasions. Their job is to do the research to make sure that the manager they recommended to you last year is still the primary manager. And I'm not trying to suggest that there's churning going on in there. Quite often, they will stick with those managers for years and years and years. But you're hiring them to do because you don't want to do the research or because they've done a fine enough job in the test period that you've had them that you realize that they've given you a better rate of return than you probably could have gotten on your own. But So those are two separate fee-for-services. I work in both ways because I have clients who come to me who say, um, I just had this happen recently. You know, I worked with fee manager, fee for service manager down in Massachusetts. She's retired. I just want to get your take on my portfolio, but I'm comfortable doing the implementation myself. I don't give them fund recommendations. I just work through the, the asset allocation conversation with them, and then they go and do the research and find the funds. Um, so, so people will work with you that way. They will. Does that answer? So how do we build a portfolio? Well, one of, if, if what, I'm, what I said before is right, is um, if I blend the portfolio using both stocks and bonds, 
then how does that work? And this is a this is a um, graph that indicates return versus risk. And if we look down here, if we look at this right here, we see that money markets, government treasuries, they have a very low risk profile, right? But they also have a very low return profile, okay? But if I go all the way up here to small caps, and we saw earlier that small caps gave me historically, um, over the last 80 years, about a 12% rate of return, I get a very good return, but a very low, very high risk or volatility um, process. So how do I get around that? Well, I blend the portfolios. I use both stocks and bonds. And so this kind of gives you some indication of if I mix them together, I may improve. In other words, I can put some of my stocks and my bonds together. Um, and I will, I can improve my rate of return over money markets or treasuries without taking on a significant amount more risk. So blending the portfolio helps. And at some point, you know, this volatility is going to be too much for you, but this might be better. And maybe this would be a combination of blue chip stocks and bonds. So by blending them, I improve my uh, return um, and I take on as much risk as is comfortable for me. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that really covers building a portfolio. And I want to end with you can, there are plenty of resources, Jane Brian Quinn, um, Fidelity's um, website that has really conversations around this, around how do I build a portfolio, how do I research <coughs> Um, stocks and bonds or mutual funds. Um, and I would use as many of those resources as I as I can to go ahead. How did you say Jane? Jane Bryan Quinn. I just I she's she's someone who's um, on you know in the media and pretty well respected in terms of um, the financial guidance that she gives. What about Susie Orman? Yeah, I think Susie's, I think she's very good. I do listen to her, and I and I think she's very very good. And they give much more than investment advice. They give you broad conversations around a lot of your financial decisions. I do. I've listened to her quite a bit, and I like her. I do. She gives you advice around debt. She gives you advice around mortgages. So, how about um, NPR's Marketplace Money? I don't know that I listen to that that much. When is it? I'm not sure. Three o'clock on Saturdays. That's what uh, I listen to. On BPR. Yeah. No, I um, I think that gives you guidance, but then I think you actually have to get in line, online, and ask yourself, okay, so I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. Even if you just use sort of a fictional portfolio. And there, there are sites where you can do that. So I'm going to buy this and I'm going to do that. See how you do. You know, see how you do. Um, so investment clubs are another thing. Good clubs. investment clubs uh -huh. where people do research together, have conversations around investing, attend as many seminars as you possibly can. If you make a decision you're going to do this on your own, really educate yourself. Now, when you say on your own, there's kind of two kinds of on your own I can think of right off. And one is finding your own ETFs and mutual funds, right. and another is picking stocks. Those are very different. 
They are, and I, generally speaking, um, I would argue that unless you're very, very good, really good, really know what you're doing, really know what you're doing, <laughs> I would not do individual stock. It's just really, I mean, it's honestly um, stacked against you as an individual investor trying to do that on E-Trade or something like that. Because you've got to worry about bid and ask prices, right? You know, somebody's offering it to you for this and you're asking to buy it for that. And you, especially with the institutional investing that is operating at the levels that it is today, you're not quite, and sometimes there's big, big differences between what they're asking and what someone's offering. And that really is a function of either nobody wants that or a very small spread difference between bid and ask and everybody wants that. And you've got to be very, very skilled at understanding the dynamics of the market in that way. Not to mention, I, as I said earlier, unless you've got a, a pretty big portfolio, any individual stock is going to have a fairly significant impact on your portfolio. So you've got to have enough money to have a fair spread of stocks, and I would say nothing less than 10. Nothing, I would say nothing less than 20. So if you can't identify 20 stocks that you like in your portfolio, don't do it. You know, buy a mutual fund that has a good track record relative to its benchmark. Because, you know, anytime something, good risk managers, good mutual fund managers don't have more than 5%. Most of them have a minimum of 40 stocks because that individual stock risk will affect your portfolio. And I don't know too many people who are skilled enough to buy that number of stocks. So generally speaking, I'm with Jane Bryant Quinn, own the mutual funds, <laughs> or, you know, managed money. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. All right, so then we have to, we've got to prepare for the unexpected. We all insure our homes. Uh, we all insure our cars. But it's good to take a look at your Medicare coverage to understand the, what exact, if you're pre-retirement, to understand exactly what that is, to understand how Medicare works, A, B, um, your, your drug coverage, um, your, um, your, um, uh, your, your total Medicare coverages so that you understand what sort of supplemental coverages should you include. Or should I have the managed Medicare option? Understand, Medicare has become increasingly complicated. Understand that. Understand exactly what it covers, because then you can give good consideration to long-term care and whether I need it or not. And then we'll talk finally about the estate planning issues, because it doesn't look like um, you're stuck with me on estate planning today. I'll do my best. Um, but we know that Part A in Medicare covers our inpatient hospital. And for those of you who have Medicare, I apologize for, for boring you with this. I'll do it quickly. Medicare um, Part A is covered. I'm curious because I'll be hitting that right. Medicare Part A is. Medicare Part A pays for your hospital coverage. And it generally has, um, you generally get 60 days for free. Um, 60 to 90, um, you will share in some of the cost, and today it's a little over $300 a day. Um, it's per year? Days it's per year or lifetime, 60 days? It's per year. Now, if you have a stay that is beyond uh, 90 days, um, you do have some lifetime reserve days, but you'll share in the expenses of those. Um, 
There's also some requirements though with Medicare this is where you have to have seven days in a hospital birth before you kick into to your care. You have to have seven days or seven nights before it picks up or you have to pay the bill up to the seven days. They have some funky little rules. Medicare? Yeah. You, you have to seven seven day, seven, or is it three days, and then it kicks into your, you know, the 120 days you have, right. 60 days. And if you don't spend three nights in a hospital, then you need to go to a rehab or something like that. But there's some funky rule about that, too, on Medicare. You're talking about to qualify for rehab services. Oh, to go from, if you don't for spend... To go from the hospital. I don't think, I mean, I think you get, um, I think you get 60 days of hospital coverage. I think what you are talking about is qualification for, you may be saying rehab, because I know it's not long-term care. It's not long-term care. Right. 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 Skilled nursing. Right, okay, skilled care. nursing facility. That could be true. I, I don't pretend to be a Medicare expert. What I'm was the 90-day thing you were saying? Um, so, the, the what what you get is you get 60, you get 60 days with no um, sharing arrangement, and then um, 60 to 90 days, you have a sharing arrangement on your hospital um, uh, coverage. Um, in a skilled nursing facility, which I think it's longer than three days, for, for a skilled nursing facility to be covered uh, by Medicare, it does need to be prefaced mm -hmm. by a stay in the hospital. Um, and then you have 20 days there where you pay nothing, and then 21 to 100, you pay, uh, you have a sharing arrangement. So um, part B is your medical coverage. You do pay a premium for that. Um, I think it's for an individual, it's a little over $100 a month right now. You've got deductibles associated with that. You have to go to Medicare approved facilities and, uh, and physicians. Um, you have no choice. <coughs> well, usually that's the doctor's choice is whether they accept Medicare or not. Uh, because Medicare has limits in terms of what they pay, and some doctors that's accepted and some aren't. Uh, you have limitations on your mental health services. Um, you have limits. You have sharing arrangements in terms of your medical equipment and supplies and your other services. So I think the key is to understand how it works and to know that even with Medicare coverage, you're going to have some out-of-pocket expenses and to understand what those are. Is there are. insurance? Does the supplemental insurance cover? Supplemental insurance does do that. Um, you've got managed Medicare where you can get, um, you get all three of these. You get A, B, and you can also get your pharmaceuticals, your, your drug costs, your drug expenses. Um, and they will pay the sharing arrangements also. You can get Medicare with Medicare supplements. Um, United Healthcare is one of those companies that provide it, uh, provide Medicare supplements similar to where your managed Medicare would do it. And if you are in Medicare, you can make changes. If you review the managed Medicare and you think it's better than your supplement and your uh, basic Medicare, you can make those that change. Is that like a personal thing? Not one's not better than the other. Managed Medicare versus the, the rules around managed Medicare is they cannot provide benefits that are less than Medicare provides. I have limited experience on this, I admit it, but what I have found is 
the the basic difference is it's treated like a PPO, a preferred preferred provider, and so it may limit the facilities that you can go to. Is really what it is. You may have a broader choice in terms of your facilities, but they're going to tell you who their preferred preferred providers are. So if you're in a particular location and you are giving some consideration to that, I would ask those specific questions exactly who, for those of us here who live at the Hitch, and Hitch, because Blue Cross Blue Shield is an example, in my parents' area, provide the managed Medicare, so whoever the preferred provider is for Blue Cross Blue Shield is who you're gonna go to. Well, for those of us here, we may not care because we're all going to the Hitch anyway, but if you live in more rural areas, understanding who their preferred preferred provider is will make a difference. Can I ask a quick question? Uh-huh. Medicare, so anybody over 65 mm-hmm. qualifies to that, mm-hmm. or you need to work this? Um, no, age 65 is when you qualify, okay. and you do, as soon as you qualify, even if you choose not to take your Social Security, apply for your Medicare. Um, because if you don't, then you pay a penalty in terms of the premiums if you apply late. Okay. So you, you want to apply for your Medicare at age 65. And I, I just had an experience where this man was, I was at the gym, was very cocky about the fact that he was very always healthy, so he opted at 65 not to get the drug thing, oh. and then he ended up with cancer, and it cost him more. For the, because he didn't say yes because to the, he, because he never yes. took a drug in his life. Right. And then all right. of a sudden he had to. Because so. what he's trying to do, which is a little bit short-sighted, he's trying to not pay the premium. Well, he said, I'm healthy. I've never been sick. Well, I work yeah. in a hospital. That can change overnight. You know, and I, and I have, that's exactly right. I mean, I say the same thing myself, and I have catastrophic individual coverage, which, by the way, was canceled for all of those who are in favor of Obamacare. And I, that's just not a, I did have my coverage canceled. Um, I do the same thing, but as I age, I think I may have a different take on it, particularly with Medicare, where the premiums are nothing like our individual coverages, um, and and I think very reasonable relative to the prospective liability. So I would argue that I'd probably take my coverages when you're younger and healthy. Yeah. That's correct. Um, probably not your expertise, but we'll ask anybody because we have a hard time with this question is, um, say United Healthcare you mentioned, nobody seems to know who takes it. United Healthcare doesn't, the, the providers don't know whether they take it or not. You can't get an answer, so are you, you, if anytime we go someplace with that, we think, are we going to get stuck with the bill or not? Uh, Do you so have that's really ideas about that? I, I would, if, one of the things that I've heard is much like managed Medicare, is before you buy United Healthcare, if you have certain providers that you go to, your best bet is to ask them in advance of contracting with them. This is where I go. These are the drugs I take. These are my particular problems. Tell me what you're going to pay me. You know. And again, for those of us who are in areas where healthcare is well readily available, it probably is not. A big deal, but for example, the managed. You want to know? Does United Healthcare provide you with eye care, dental care, things like that? The the managed um, uh, Medicare that my parents do have have eye care. So then the second question is, well, <clears throat> who are your preferred providers? And I, I don't think United Healthcare is an exception. So um, you've already con- contracted with it. Is this apparent? Um. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So, um, so that's very interesting. So they've got Medicare and United Healthcare as their, as their supplement. And one, I, you know, do you, I would ask the question of specific providers. Do you take United Healthcare? Because in those instances, maybe. No, we don't, but we would take Blue Cross Blue Shield, so maybe Medicare, managed Medicare would be a better option for you because of the providers you'd like to go to. We don't take United Healthcare, but we do take Blue Cross Blue Shield. You well, see what I'm saying? I ha we had some similar experience. Lori's mother came from New York up here last year, and uh, we had United Healthcare, bridged everything from New York to Vermont and New Hampshire. No problem. They've been amazing. See, I was going to say United Healthcare is pretty readily That's accepted as a, as a. Have you found that it's not? Because they're AARP's, they're AARP's recommendation <coughs> for a Medicare supplement. Three People states. are so happy when they ask, do you have right. supplemental when I say United Healthcare? United Healthcare is pretty broadly accepted because of AARP. They're they're their recommended supplements. So if someone, I would say they're pretty broadly accepted, but generally speaking, I've heard of people saying Medicare supplements and the recommendation that I've generally made is make sure that you know who accepts them. Um, I mean, I've done the same with dental care. They sent me down to somewhere where I walked in and I'm like, sense is that if, if you go to a provider who will bill to Medicare and they're provided for Medicare that they'll they'll bill to your secondary to your to your um, what is it called again? United Health United Healthcare. United they straight away just go you should Lori's not three different states and no problem. Right. Okay, so and we've talked about this already. I think you, you look at your gaps and that's where your supplements come in. You make sure that you really understand what your coinsurance and your co-payments are so that you know what's covered, what's not covered, and what your uh, co-payments are um, so that you're prepared financially for those things that are not covered by your health care. Then once you have your medical coverage, um, and you know what Medicare covers. We know what it doesn't cover. What it doesn't cover are those things that are not preceded by a hospital stay. And that's where long-term care kicks in because it will provide for things that Medicare doesn't provide for um, because it's, it's, it's not under the defined coverage as well as Medicare will not provide coverage for certain things that long-term care does, okay? So in other words, I'm at home, rehab is not gonna help me anymore. My providers have told Medicare that's the case. So Medicare starts to say, well, I'm not gonna provide for it um, for you, and yet you're at home and you need help because you you can't perform some of the, um, some of the, um, things that that are daily functions so you may and th this can happen in other words I've I've had a prolonged illness but I haven't been hospitalized you know I'm just getting older um, so I can't provide for myself quite as well so in addition to the things that we think long-term care will also help us uh, for at-home care in terms of 
rehabilitation if we've had just an accident or we're just disabled as a result of an accident and we're not able to perform life functions. Long-term care will provide for those things uh, in, in, in circumstances where Medicare does not. Um, and generally they'll pay you for more than just nursing home care. They pay you for at-home care. They pay you for adult community assistance, uh, day, daytime adult community assistance, as well as in an assisted living facility. Um, there is sure. an elimination period. I don't know if you're going to talk about that. But. Yeah, you know, and I, in fact, I am, because I'm going to skip through some of these because we may, I may be getting a little long on some things. Let's talk about, yeah, I will. I'm going to talk about the elimination period. Um, so um, how does it work? Um, it may, um, actually it helps some people stay at home. Um, it may help you not be committed to, uh, to having to go to a nursing facility because it, once it's determined that you cannot perform the daily functions, let me see if I have this, the daily functions which are bathing, continence, eating, um, uh, movement, uh, being able to move. Once you can't do two of those six daily functions, then you qualify for long-term care. Um, and that means that people can come in and help you with household tasks. They can help you with bathing and dressing. So those are not medically necessary tasks, right? They're functions that can be performed by people who are not licensed practitioners. Um, they can help you with special equipment that you need, walkers, um, you know, if you need some modifications to your home, around your bathroom, or accessing your home, long-term care can pay for that. It can provide for just a home health aid if that's what you need. Um, so long-term care is more flexible than Medicare uh, in the sense that it does not need to be preceded by a, um, by a hospital stay. Um, and can actually kick in in more progressive illnesses that don't necessarily require um, hospital care. There is a waiting period. I thought I actually have another um, that I thought I had this in a little bit more detail and as I scroll through I realized I, I have it, that's a different seminar that I use this for. Here's how it works. The premiums are a function of how long you want the benefits, because a lot of people feel that I can't afford it. I can't afford long-term care. And I would suggest that you go to a specialist in terms of long-term care and ask the question of, let's assume I just needed a pot of money that's uh, $200,000, what would it cost me? And here's the variables that it will affect your premium. It's how long is your waiting period? So a lot of people coordinated with their Medicare. Well, Medicare might pay for my nursing home facility or my at-home care for 90 days, as we described before, okay? So they may have a 100-day waiting period, which says, um, I will need maybe some at-home care or some long-term care for 100 days before my benefit kicks in. And that keeps your premium down. Some people might say that's a little bit too long or Medicare is not that flexible or you get a quote that says there's a 100-day waiting period and you say, oh, I can afford that. In fact, I can do better. In fact, I think, and, and so 
you look at that dollar amount and you say, well, you shorten it to 90 days or to 60 days or to 30 days, depending upon affordability. Sometimes you say, I want more benefit. You know, I know that it's probably 72,000 a year for a nursing home facility and I want, and I know the average um, stay at a nursing home facility is around three years and I want that covered. So I'd like to have $200,000 worth of benefit, you know, because essentially what long-term care is a pool of money that once you spend money, they reimburse you. And it's for however long that pool of money lasts. The average so, stay in assisted care facility is $125,000 a year. Yeah. And so, and which is why people use long-term care to try, try to stay at home. First of all, I think they think they're more comfortable at home if they can stay there. So what sort of aid can I help that allows me to stay at home? And so this pool of money can be used for that too. But once I look at $200,000 and I see the premium, well, I can, if it's too much, I can extend my waiting period or I can reduce the pool of money that's available to me. Maybe I'll just buy two years of benefit, whatever's affordable. And then there are inflation protectors um, that will, I bought it in my 50s. I know that I want to have it keep pace with inflation. Those are your most expensive options when you have your benefits adjusted for inflation. That's a fairly expensive part of your premium. So 